0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. We're currently in the book of Philippians. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We're actually at the, really at the conclusion of our, our sermon series through the book of Philippians. Um, we've been walking through it for the past, I guess, six weeks or so, and this is our, our penultimate sermon. And, and what I have to do kind of, I think, to, to set us up just briefly is, is let you know that, that this morning's text in particular could probably... Um, it's probably going to feel somewhat disjointed in that Paul is kind of, as, as is Paul's habit, um, at the conclusion of his letter, he kind of likes to go through and, and remind them about just about everything that he's already said. So um, it might feel a little bit disjointed in that he's kind of tackling two or three different things, um, but we're going to do our best to kind of um, labor through it. And so there's uh, really three distinct sections, but all of it, all of it is tied back to um, a verse in chapter one that I'm just going to read for you. That really set up, kind of set up the whole letter, the whole body of the letter that we've been through over the past couple of weeks. And so, chapter one, verse twenty-seven says this: "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And so, this is um, what Paul is is concluding from in the, in the coming verses. So if you'll uh, join me for a word of prayer, we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come together to, to worship you or to rejoice in what it is that you have done on our behalf. I pray, Father, that um, for those of us this morning, Lord, who are maybe feeling a little bit weak or maybe it's been a, a, a long week, a rough week, uh, maybe we're under the weather um, physically. God, I just pray that um, I pray God that you wouldn't let any of that hinder um, the great beauty that that is present in the text this morning, God. The call to to rejoice always, Lord, to be a people who allow the peace of God that surpasses understanding to to wash over us, God, to to cause us to be reasonable. Um, and so, Lord, I just uh, I look forward to to how you are going to speak to us through this text. We love you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Cool. So there's um. Like I said, there's three distinct sections, and so we're going to kind of break them down piece by piece. The first one is is kind of Paul's final call to unity, um, which he really addresses at the end of chapter one and and throughout the the, the second chapter of Philippians. Um, the second thing we'll talk about is just a, a call to devotion, a devotion to one another, also a devotion to uh, certain practices that we'll that we'll break down. And then the last one is just a call to a call to wisdom, to being wise. So. Um, let's just read through it like we always do. Um, chapter four, verse two says this, and uh, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And so again, before we even move on, let's try to sort of discern what it is that's happening here, right? Like Paul has given us over the past couple of weeks, some, some very, I guess, um, I wouldn't call it theory, but essentially he is outlining reasons as to why we should be united, right? And what and what Paul is doing now is taking that, that theory or that understanding of the gospel, that truth about Jesus that calls us to unity, and he's applying it to a specific situation that's taking place in the church at Philippi. And so what's happening here is that essentially this is two women, for whatever reason, that have a, a disagreement. And let me do this um, so that we can just be very clear. Um, this is not just sort of a petty dispute. Or, or a little catfight between two noisy women, right? I think often it's, it's maybe interpreted that way. Um, and, and I think really that just comes down to kind of a, a chauvinistic reading of the scriptures. But if we look at the way that Paul talks about these two in verse 3, right? He says this, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. I think what we can, we can see is that um, this dispute, although we don't know exactly what it is, that this dispute is, is of some significance, and, is, and it's not just of significance personally to these two women, but that it's actually something that probably revolves around the doing, the living of the gospel in Philippi. So here's, what, here's, here's how I would frame it. Essentially, you have two women who have, who have labored on behalf of this church. They've labored well on behalf of it, in fact. Like Paul says, they're my, they're my co-laborers, right? And he says, it's time for you guys to, to agree in the Lord. So I, again, we're, we are wading in some waters, I think, that, that might be a little bit speculative. And at the same time, I, I still think that we're faithful in that what's happening here is a dispute that has the church's, essentially, the church's direction at its heart. So these are two women who have labored faithfully for the sake of this church, and for whatever reason, there's there's a direction that the church is taking upon which they can't quite agree. Right? And what the and what Paul is is saying to them or is entreating them, asking them to do, encouraging, exhorting them to do, is to come to an agreement in the Lord about how the church is, is going to proceed forward. Right? So, um, Here's what we're, what we're going to take that to, at least I think that's appropriate. Um, when, we get, when we get down to it, right, um, there's, there's a plethora of, of churches all through... I've always wanted to use that word in a sermon, sorry. Um, <laughs> the Three Amigos was my favorite movie growing up, so if you've ever seen it, you know why that's funny. Um, anyway... There's a, there's a plethora of different churches, and there's a, a lot of different ways that churches do different things faithfully, like according to Scripture, right? So the Scripture calls us to do certain things together. It calls us to love one another, serve one another, right? It calls us to rejoice together with one another, calls us to all kinds of, of things, right? And, and different churches set those different things up different ways. And, and the, the church also, universally, the church has a, a common mission, right? That we're called to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us, right? So we've got all of these things in common, and yet, and yet much of the way that actually takes place, like the way we do those things, can vary. Right, like I think there's some freedom there in that we don't have explicit instruction as to how those things should take place, but we do have conceptually the the truth that they should take place. Right, and and, and I think often what happens, at least at least here in America, I don't know if this is a problem in in other parts of the world um, because maybe they don't ha- they aren't spoiled for choice like I think we are. But um, but what will often happen is that when a church makes a certain decision um, to, to to maybe to maybe set itself up in a certain way or to or to move in a certain direction, right? There, there's always people in the crowd who are going to have like varying opinions on, on what we're doing, right? I think we've probably all been in that situation where it's like, and maybe it's just picking lunch, right? Like we went to Cafe Brazil for a long time. I can't tell you how much heat I got for that, but it's literally just down the road. Um, anyway. So that's just a small example, but, but right, like, I, I don't think anybody left because of that, maybe. Um, they, they haven't made themselves known if that, if that happened, but, but often, often what will happen, right, especially in these more important issues that are, that are obviously creating some tension for the church at Philippi is that, is that either A, we'll, we'll stick it out and we'll just kind of create a, a, a place in that's kind of hostile in nature, right? Where, where it's kind of uncomfortable to be around because you just know that, that these two groups of people are at odds. Or two, what will happen is that one of those parties will, will just kind of leave. I just kind of say, okay, you know, I don't really agree with the way that we're going to do that, so I'm going to find another place in which I can be e- either comfortable or affirmed in my belief as to how this church should, should proceed forward, right? Um, and yet, what Paul is asking them to do is not is not necessarily to separate or to say, "Look, if you guys can't get along, then maybe maybe you need to to just move on, move on in different directions." but what Paul actually says is, "I entreat you to agree in the lord right and so so this is completely and totally linked to Philippians chapter 2 where Paul begins to talk about the the example of Christ's humility, right? So you have two strong women who have leadership in the church, right? They they've cared for this church, they've poured themselves out for this church. They're they're differing in their ideas of what they should do. And Paul, calling back to Philippians to essentially entreats them to agree in the Lord. And and this is what he's he's calling them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, right? So again, this this final call that, that Paul is making specifically to the church at Philippi is another one, I think, that that we can take upon ourselves, right? Now, there's many of us in the room who who are maybe members of Sojourn, like you, you know you've kind of made this your home, and let me just let me just say this. Um, over the next year, like so, we've been around for a year, right? Uh, there's been a lot of decisions that have been made. There's a lot of a lot of things that have sort of been put into place, and yet there's still a, a lot to be done for us, right? And especially in this next year, there's going to be all kinds of decisions that. That need to be made and that need to be thought through and that need to be like carefully considered for our church. And and what's going to happen inevitably is is that we're, we're probably going to disagree on on some of those things and how those things play themselves out. And yet, I think what we can take away from this, like like personally as a church, is that that in those moments we're we're not. We're not called to, to just sort of push away from, from the dinner table, right? To, to get up and to leave, but we're called to, to press into that, like to press in for unity because unity is not, let me, let me define unity for us, unity is, is not most evident when we are all agreeing on, on every single point in every single way right? Unity and the beauty of unity is most evident when people who maybe disagree or who think differently on certain issues can come together in light of that which is of first importance, which is doing the gospel in our context, right? Like, and that's what what the argument is about here between these two ladies is, is how are we, essentially, how are we as the church going to do the gospel in Philippi? There's disagreement there, and yet Paul says, have unity. Like, Go back Go back to just a little bit earlier in this, in this letter. Remind yourself, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in all things, consider yourself insignificant in comparison to others. Significance, right? Like, humble yourselves. And so, let me just be real practical about just about kind of how sojourn is laid out. So, for those of you um, maybe that are our guests for the first time this morning, or maybe um, you've been around for a while, but you haven't heard me sort of speak this candidly about, about sort of how we're set up um, or how we want to be set up, right? Uh, and, and I guess before I can even do that, let me, let me do this real quick and just say that we have an ideal at Sojourn, right? Like there's, there, there's, there's an ideal, I think, that, that Scripture presents and also one probably that we long for, right? And yet Sojourn is probably somewhere down here, like, right? So there's a, there's a gap in between what is ideal, like what we would like for Sojourn to be, and, and, and if Sojourn were in sort of this perfect, wonderful, utopian world, this is what it would look like, but, but we're broken and we're sinners, so this is what it actually looks like, right? Um, but the ideal for us is, is this, right? We, we want Sojourn to be a place where any idea can and, and should be brought to the table, right? And we want to be in an open place where we're, where we're constantly together, like corporately considering what it looks like to do the gospel, to live the gospel in our context, right? We also want to have a culture that doesn't take it personally when our ideas aren't executed or, or chosen, right? Because we're all kind of, we recognize that we can't do all things, we can do some things. Right? Because if we try to do all things, we'll do all things marginally well, but if we do some things, we can do those things really well. Right? So we want to limit our scope. And so in light of that, we can be free to disagree, but at some point, at some point, which is the point that they've arrived at here in, in, in Philippians, is a point at which it becomes more harmful than helpful for us to be in disagreement, right? So like sojourn should be a healthy place like where where differing ideas can come to the table and they can kind of mesh with each other and kind of bump up against each other. This is is exactly what Proverbs is talking about when it says that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, right? Like it's kind of a a clashing of sorts, right? That That we're together sharpened by those things. But at some point or at some moment, whenever that decision has been taken, right? What we do at that moment is, is essentially take upon ourselves the, the necessity that that we as Christians submit to one another. Right? That just like Philippians 2 calls us to do, that we would that we would count ourselves insignificant in comparison with others, that we would humbly love and serve one another. Right? And so um I think I think here at Sojourn, like we're not, we're not a top-down organization. I don't have autonomy in decision-making, right? Like I think we've created avenues for, for discussion and for ideas and things to, to come forth. But we, just like Euodia and just like Syntyche, in these situations, have to at some point get it together. Why? Well, the, the last part of verse 3 says this, whose names are in the book of of life, right? So he says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, yet, yes, I ask you also, true companion, by the way, we don't know who he's talking to when he says true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, right? So our names, like if, if, you're, a, uh, if you're a member of Sojourn, you're a Christian, right? We've, so we've, we've had that discussion. Um, That means that our our, our names are in the book of life and that as a colony of heaven in Houston, we must live the life of the future now. One, so that others might see its worth, and two, so that we might foretaste its goodness, right? That the, the very gospel that we cherish is at stake in the way we agree with one another. I think that's what that's what Paul essentially is saying here. He's like, "Look, the the gospel is at stake. It's time for you guys to agree in the Lord, like in Christ." So, again, it's not it's not necessarily all right, I need you to just kind of uh, uh give up or not care about this issue anymore. You can still have opinions, you can still even think those things, but it's time to agree in the Lord. And so, um if you've been around sojourn like this is this is the kind of environment I think that that we would want to create. And this is how we would want to walk towards one another because our unity, just like we've seen all, really all throughout the, the, uh, the second chapter of Philippians is critical, like critical to the truth of the gospel being put on display for a watching world to see, right? So if, if Ephesians 3 is true, when it says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known then the unity of the church is crucial to that being true, right? That when we can come together and we can, in service of our Lord and King Jesus, submit humbly to one another when the church may, may take a direction that, that maybe necessarily we're not entirely comfortable with. Now, let me make one quick distinction before we move on to the next point. Um, there's, there's not a doctrinal issue at stake here. Right, so I think when there's, if ever I get up here and tell you that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, like get out and get out quick. Okay, Um, you're free to leave. That's that's heretical, and I've done something's gone horribly wrong. Right, but when it comes to the secondary issues, again, of not right, not what we're going to accomplish, which is make disciples, right, Uh, multiply parishes, baptize people, do all those things, right? Not what we're going to do, but but how we're going to do them right, which is, which is left up for, up for interpretation or up for creativity in, in the text, right? That when those moments come along that we're willing to say, you know what? Maybe I wouldn't do it this way. But the fact of the matter is that we are still doing what God has called us to do, right? So maybe I don't like the name Neighborhood Parish. Maybe I don't like the concept of Neighborhood Parish. And yet God has called me to live in community with other believers. And this is how this local church does that. Does that make sense? Cool. All right, so uh, let's move on. Uh, the next portion is a, a call to devotion. I, we're, this is probably going to be the longer of, of the three points, so just to be aware, but I think there's really three distinct things that, that Paul calls us to underneath this. And so um, verse four reads like this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. and And so... Before we even move into this, um, or before I explain just this portion, like when we talk about this call to devotion, right, the call to unity was a, a corporate call, right? And he's, he's speaking specifically to these two women, but he's really talking to the whole church at Philippi, like to, to be united, right? And in these calls to devotion, like what, what Paul is doing is, is not only calling them individually to rejoice or individually to pray, but he's also calling them corporately to rejoice. And to pray, right? So these are things that we experience both, both individually, and and corporately together, right? So, um, and verse four, the the devotion that Paul is calling us to is a devotion to rejoicing, right? And I think that this is connected. Um, completely and holy to, to chapter three, verse one, right? Where Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you, right? And we talked about how that, especially that beginning portion of chapter three is just, I mean, it's all, it's the gospel, right? And so our rejoicing, our collective rejoicing is in light of what Jesus has done on our behalf, that, that our righteousness comes by faith right? That it was a gift given of grace from the Lord that we can't secure for ourselves righteousness, but that it's been secured for us, right? And so in light of that, what Paul says that or the way he kind of wraps that up is he says, look, both individually and corporately, we need to rejoice in the Lord always, right? You can even tie it back to just that last portion of verse three, where it says whose names are in the book of life. Like if you're if you're a child of the living God, if you've been adopted into the family of God by the work of Jesus, your life should be characterized by rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And so here's uh, here's what I think we we need to do with that. Um, when we talk about it being being done individually, and we talk about it being being done corporately, right? So uh, one, I think. We'll talk about it in a moment when we talk about prayer, but um, like just, just rejoicing in the fact that we even have an, an audience before God, right? But then I think the way that, that we do this corporately, right, um, the way that that happens is, it, or really it should happen in, in all avenues of the church, right? So when we gather in our parish gatherings throughout the week, like we should be rejoicing in what the Lord has done on our behalf. Right when we gather at Sunday gatherings, like this is what this is what's taking place here, right? I think a lot of times we maybe we come to church and I, if we're just honest, I think some of it is a little bit self-centered, in that maybe we're thinking um, we need a, a teaching to be delivered to us that's particularly insightful, or maybe uh, music that we're going to enjoy, like it's going to be a good experience to listen to, right? And and while those things are are good ultimately what they're serving to do though is to cause us to rejoice in the Lord together. Right? And so when when we sing together like we're rejoicing in what the Lord has done, we're celebrating the good news that Jesus has secured for us salvation eternally. Right? And 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 when I preach, like that's the same thing that I'm that I'm I'm preaching towards. Like that's the end of this time, right? That you would walk out of here not thinking, man that was particularly good or even particularly bad you know but that you would that you would see hopefully the truth of God's word and that you would rejoice that he is that he has made himself visible right like that the invisible god has been made visible in jesus and that we can see and know him through his word and so let me just say really quickly and i think we rejoice also in our prayers right it, it, all throughout the the morning and so um let me just say this. I think, just generally speaking, like if someone, if anyone, random person were to come in on a Sunday morning here and we were to ask them to characterize our gathering time, like in, in one word, rejoicing would probably not be the one that they chose. And and that's not, so I'm not trying to, to kind of, come at you or anything like that, but I'm just saying, like, when, when it comes time for us to, to, to join the Lord in, in heaven, like, and, and, and we come before his throne, my, my guess is, my guess is that um, you won't do this. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. Oh, they didn't switch the words yet. <laughs> like I'm just saying like that's probably not what it's going to look like. <laughs> like you're you're probably you're probably going to express yourself not only not only verbally but physically to the Lord like with rejoicing. Right? That like, God, you're good. You've allowed me into your presence in spite of the fact that I have no righteousness of my own. In fact, you've given me the righteousness of your son. And that's good news this morning. That's good news every morning. That's why someone like the psalmist can can sit down and write like, your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. I'm astounded at them. So can I just, just gently I just gently challenge you to like, to rejoice in the Lord, not just like you're, we're, we are whole beings, right? So we're, we're both physical and spiritual and mental, right? And, and Paul's going to acknowledge that I think in this text where he calls us to do spiritual things with rejoicing, but he also calls us to ponder the good things of, of culture and, and, and really all of like, what we'll see in a second. I'm going to try not to overstep here, but but right, that that would be characterized. I mean, that would be characterized by the gospel, the good news, right? Like if it's really true that, that you were by nature an object of God's wrath, but God being rich in mercy made you alive in Christ, like that's good news, right? And so rejoice. We always have a reason to rejoice. Um, and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper um, here in just a second. Verse five says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. All right, so we're a people who are devoted to rejoicing. We're also a people who are devoted to being reasonable, right? Like, and I think what Paul is alluding to here is just, is a sobriety of mind, right? This, this follows completely with really the first part of chapter three, where Paul, again, is reminding them of the gospel, look, your salvation is secure in Christ, right? Go go to Romans chapter eight, read verses 31 through I think 39, right? Talks about how we can't be separated from him. Like there, there's, there's nothing, that there's no power, that there's no principality, there's nothing in heaven or on earth, there's no breadth, no height, no depth that can separate us from the love of Christ, right? That should lend to us a, a mind, right, that is, it is essentially reasonable in the sense that we understand what our reality is right that we've been steeped in the gospel enough that we know what that the lord is at hand right that the, that our eschatological hope meaning the 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 end of our lives like the hope at the end of our lives is real and true and that it is near right the bible tells us that our life is a it's a mist it's a brief brief mist of vapor compared to eternity, right? And the Christian knows that their their eternity has been secured. And so they can walk with a sobriety of mind. And I don't mean that in the sense of like intoxication. I mean that in the sense of like just being able to walk through circumstances soberly. And there's no better model for that than, than Paul, right? Who's writing this letter from prison And he's saying, rejoice, I will say it again, rejoice. Not like, you would think that those two things would be kind of like paradoxical or couldn't exist together. I'm in prison and yet rejoicing. Those two don't go together. And yet Paul is saying in light of the fact that God has secured for him his salvation through the work of Jesus, applied it to him by the power of the spirit, he can rejoice at all times. Now, this reasonableness that, that he's talking about or this, this sort of steadfastness, right? Like this understanding of the gospel should be evident to all, right? That's what he says. It should be known to everyone. And that's both within the church and without the church, right? Like outside of the church, that they would look upon us and think, man, there's something about them that they are confident in, which I don't really understand. And can I just say that this this phrase in particular has not typified the the American church. Like every time something goes uh, not our way in the cultural sphere, more often than not, we react in fear, don't we? Well, everything's just going to heck, right? Like it's all done. Our our country's going to crumble. Our nation's going to fall, you know, whatever it might be. And yet, like, the Lord has not called us into this sort of hysterical, like, worrying over the cultural climate of the day. Right? Like, we should walk in reasonableness, like, in confidence in what the Lord is going to do. Because, look, there's, just just like we talked about in Romans 8, I'm about to go back there and read it just so that we can soak in it. But, man, there's nothing there is nothing that is going to thwart that which God purposes to do in your life or in this world. And so we can walk with reasonableness, knowing that the Lord is at hand. We can be anchored in this hope that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Um, and for time's sake, I won't read Romans eight thirty-one through 39, but you should do that when you leave here. Um, all right, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, right? So we are, we are a people that should be devoted, right, to rejoicing with one another. We should be devoted to, like, to calming one another in the gospel, Right? To so like when, when, when we're about to fall off the wagon to being like, no, d- hey, Jesus has this. Like the God of the universe is orchestrating all things for your good. It's gonna be okay. And then the third thing we should be devoted to is, at least from this portion, um, is to prayer, right? And I think that this is connected to our our reasonableness, right? So I think... There, there's a couple of things that we have to acknowledge here number one, do not be anxious about anything um, frankly i don't even know if that's possible <laughs> just person, personally like for me there's a lot of things that cause me anxiety throughout the day um, and, and really in those moments those are the moments when I'm, I'm looking to myself for the solution rather than to like the grace of God in whatever whatever plays itself out right so if, if, if you feel the weight of that if you're like man like, I'm anxious all the time like, Just relax. It's okay. It's a a growing journey, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Um, And then it tells us that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts, right? So I think there's there's a couple of things that we can note, right? And then what I want to do is just go through a case study from the Bible um, of, of what it looks like to, to sort of pray in light of this verse. Um, what you'll notice is that it doesn't say, right? Don't be anxious about anything and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will come to you when your prayers are answered in the manner in which you desire for them to be answered. Right? And so it, do, it doesn't say that. Can we acknowledge that? That like maybe, just maybe when you pray to God, he he may have answered you, you just didn't recognize it because you wanted your own answer, right? Because if you were God, you would have answered it in a different way. And yet that's uh, that's key here, I think, in, in, in understanding what it looks like for us to come before God, right? That we can gain peace from that Romans 8 understanding, that we can gain peace from a God who is not only for us, but is also powerful, right? Like he's not just the friend that we kind of talk to and sympathize with, who we can kind of unload our feelings to, but we've still got to solve and and resolve whatever that issue is. But that he's a God who not only hears our requests, who is not only for us as a friend and father, but who is also powerful and mighty to see those things accomplished, right? So, um, I just want to give us an, an example. Uh, I'm going to go to the book of Job, and um, it's a long story, so I'm going to try to keep it as succinct as possible. But essentially, there's, there's a man named Job who is, who is known for his, his righteousness, right? Like he's known for being a, a man who loves God, who follows God, right? And this is before, before Jesus, so that's kind of a devotion to the law, right? Devotion to, to doing the good things that God had asked them to do in that. And and he's he's a blessed man. So he has daughters, and he has you know a, a, a large amount of property and cattle and and all that stuff. It, basically, every semblance of of wealth and prosperity that you could have at, at this point in time, right? And essentially, Satan comes to the Lord, and and the Lord says, "Look at my servant Job. This is a man essentially to be honored." And then Satan says, "Yeah, but I mean, he's blessed. If you if you were to take all those things away from him, then." surely he would he would curse you right surely he would turn upon you and the lord says have at it you 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 can't kill him right but everything else is is fair game have at him and what we go on to see is that sure enough, like that, that happens. And he loses his daughters and he loses all of his belongings. And essentially he ends up sitting in a pile of ash, the burned, burned rubble of his home. And he's weeping for the loss of his family and all of his belongings. And this is what he says to the Lord in chapter 31 of the book of Job. He said, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous And disaster for the workers of iniquity. So he's essentially saying, seriously, me? (laughs) Does not he see my ways and number my steps? And then he goes on to say, look, maybe if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. So he's saying, look, I, he's like, I don't know. I don't understand what it is that's happening here. God, have I not walked before you in righteousness? God, and what we know from the text is that God himself says yes, right? He doesn't say it to Job, but we know that, that he's walked and lived well, lived righteously, right? And so he's, he's confused at that. I mean, I mean, his complaint goes on for um, quite, quite a bit. So <laughs> we're going to, we're going to skip forward, but the, the Lord eventually answers Job. And this is what he answers him with. It's chapter 38, if you happen to be following along. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And this is God speaking about himself. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measures? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Right, it, it goes on for, for a really long time. Right, but this is the, this is the God that, that you and I are praying to. Right, the God who shut in the ocean with stone doors, the one who laid up the heavens in the sky, who gave them their boundaries, who from the first day has held all things in existence by his grace. And this is the God that the Bible tells us, you and I get to come before with boldness and confidence. Why? Because of Christ. Right, Hebrews chapter 4. We can come before God. We can bring our prayers, our supplications before this God who owns the universe, who controls. And and yeah, I, I can't even begin to put into words his greatness, his power, his majesty. And you and I get to come before him with boldness and confidence. And here's what happens. Job, uh, Job's complaint, Job's turmoil, right? Job's inner inner wrestling with God eventually turns into peace because of God's answer. And in verse 42, this is what Job says. Then Job answered, sorry, this is chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And catch this, because I say this all the time. I use different words, but I say it all the time. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. What God decrees comes to pass. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job's peace, right, comes from the understanding that what the Lord is going to do in and through the life of Job can't be thwarted. And look, the same is true of you individually, the same is true of us corporately, and the the same is true of the church universal, right? So it doesn't matter what the outward circumstances look like. The fact is that this God that we serve who is over all and in all and through all is the one who hears our petitions. And so that's where our peace comes from. Our peace doesn't come from, this is going to be answered the way that I want it to be answered because I asked politely. It's that the God of the universe is for you. So rest in him. And the peace of God that that surpasses all understanding will, will comfort your hearts or guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so it's because of this, right? Like it's because of that truth that we can approach with thankfulness, right? So you think to yourself, okay, if, I was, if I'm anxious and I can bring my prayers and supplications for, before God, like why, why would he tag in thankfulness? We can be thankful because of who we get to come to. And and we can be confident that he not only bends his ear to us, but that he works all things together for our good. All right, and we're going to read the last two verses here, um, and then we'll wrap up. And it says this, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So do you see, you see what's happening here? The, the, the unrest... That the church at Philippi is experiencing, not, not only from within, but also from the, the, the culture without, right? They're in a they're they're in a place in which they're not particularly welcomed or enjoyed, right? And even internally, there's a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of strife. There's some leaders in the church that are that are kind of at odds with one another, right? The pressure might be getting to them a little bit. And what Paul has called them to do over this whole thing is to is to look to Christ, right? To, to, to essentially see that in him, all, all of these things are wrapped up, right? In him is all things honorable. In him, all things are just. In him, all things are, are all things that are pure, lovely, commendable, right? Excellent, worthy of praise. Those are the things that we should consume our minds with, right? We're called to that wisdom, the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to man. And Paul tells us, he, he, he comforts us, he, he, he assures us that when we take these things that we've learned, that we've received, that we've heard, that we've seen in him, that the God of peace will be with us. Let's pray.